This episode of Outlaws and Gunslingers is brought to you by Hydronique Hydration, electrolyte powder drink packets. Started in the midst of the pandemic, the founder of Hydronique Hydration, a frontline healthcare worker, started developing constant headaches. A landmark research study published early during the pandemic showed that up to 81% of frontline healthcare workers develop new headaches, mainly because of their PPE, their personal protective equipment like masks and face shields, which prevented them from eating and drinking properly while on the job. He would leave work tired, dehydrated, and burnt out. Well, the founder looked for a healthy drink with all the necessary vitamins and minerals, but with no sugar, something that was keto-friendly and healthy. But most powdered drinks on the market have a ton of sugar and caffeine. That's why he created Hydronique Hydration. Sugar-free, keto-friendly, plant-based, antioxidant-rich, electrolyte powder packets for daily use containing all the essential vitamins and minerals with a refreshing taste. Their product contains elderberry, which has immune-boosting properties for support during cold and flu season. Hydronique Hydration electrolyte powder packets can also fit in your bag or suitcase when traveling, which makes it perfect for on the go. You guys remember traveling, right? So if you're having trouble with eating and drinking healthy during your busy day in 2022, but want a sugar-free, keto-friendly vitamin drink, give Hydronique Hydration a try. There are 30 electrolyte powder packets in a pouch perfect for a one-month supply. You can visit the website www.hydroniquehydration.com. That's www.hydroniquehydration.com. Just think of the word hydration and unique mash together. That's www.hydroniquehydration.com. Or you can go to amazon.com and search Hydronique Hydration, where they are offering a discount coupon at checkout for the next week. That's hydroniquehydration.com. You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals, from the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Welcome back to Outlaws and Gunslingers with your host, Bang here, Dang over there. And this one's not going to be your typical uh, thing about bank robbing and train robbing and thieving. And, well, it is thieving, I guess, but uh, this one's a little different. Then what we usually do in the form of, uh, it's a kidnapping of a baby. You guys probably heard of it. The Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Right. A little uh, more heavy of a story than we usually do. I don't think we're going to be joking around too much in this episode. But you never know because that's where we are we. (laughs) We are we. Maybe we should have saved this one for the serial killer. I guess it's not a serial killer. Yes, all about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Um... What's up with these Germans? The Germans, man. man. Known as the crime of the century back in the day when it happened. And now, still one of the most uh, high-profile crimes ever in the history of the United States, I would assume. Twas it twas. Everybody knows uh, Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator. Wasn't he like a, well, I guess, was he a general? Something. We'll was a colonel it. in the army or something? We'll find out. Yeah, but uh, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., Jr., 20-month-old son of the famous aviator and... His mother, Ann Marl Lindbergh, was kidnapped about 9 p.m. on March 1st, 1932 from the nursery on the second floor of the Lindbergh home near Hopewell, New Jersey. Huh. The child's absence was discovered and reported to his parents, who were then at home at approximately 10 p.m. by the child's nurse, Betty Gow. Wow. 
A search of the premises was immediately made, and a ransom note demanding $50,000 was found on the nursery windowsill. After the Hopewell police were notified, the report was telephoned to the New Jersey State Police, who assumed charge of the investigation. So no FBI, huh? You think uh, they would have brought in the FBI for famous Charlie's Lindbergh? Uh, they probably give it a couple hours before they do anything, right? Hmm. Pretty sure these guys were at home when it happened. They were, like, having a party yeah, or something. Yeah, they are sitting there, yeah. Hmm. A dinner party or something? Yeah. Mm. It's already suspicious. Right. Darren's search at the kidnapping scene. Traces of mud were found on the floor of the nursery. Footprints, impossible to measure, were found under the nursery window. Two sections of the ladder had been used in reaching the window. One of the two sections was split or broken where it joined to the other, indicating that the ladder had been broken during the ascent or descent, obviously, on the way down. Uh, there were no bloodstains in or about the nursery, nor were there any fingerprints, obviously. So these guys left the ladder on the window? Well, it was broken in half. Did they break it in half? No, they could, why would they do that? Did they fall with the kid? I think so. Maybe they fell with the kid and then something happened to it right. then, so they had no choice. But I guess we, yeah, we're going a little too far in the story already. <laughs> but uh, household and estate employees were questioned and investigated. Colonel Lindbergh asked friends to communicate with the kidnappers, and they made widespread appeals for the kidnappers to start negotiations. Various underworld characters were dealt with in attempts to contact the kidnappers, kidnappers and numerous clues were advanced and exhausted. So they're like... Reaching out to all the underworld guys, but come on, guys, you guys got to know something. Because right. you knew this, you knew back in the fifties and stuff, um, or the thirties. This is yeah. Um, this Lindbergh guy knew all the mafia dudes and all right. that shit oh, back then, dude. For especially sure, especially in New Jersey. I mean, come on, crazy. A second ransom note was received by Colonel Lindbergh on the sixth of March, nineteen thirty-two, postmarked Brooklyn, New York, March fourth, in which the ransom demand was increased to seventy thousand. Jeez. A police conference was then called to the governor by the governor at Trenton, New Jersey, which was attended by prosecuting officials, police authorities, and government representatives. Yeah, government representatives. All right. Various theories and police. <laughs> Polices. <laughs> Polices. <laughs> Various theories and policies of procedure were discussed. Private investigators were also employed. That should have been the first thing. Uh, we're also employed by Colonel Lindbergh's attorney, Colonel Henry Breckenridge. Mm. Here's a letter of the ransom note. It says, dear, uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it does say, too. It says, have 50000 with the money sign at the end of the 1000 which is stupid. Have 50000 ready. I think that's what it says. All right. 25000 in $20 bills, 5000 or 15000 in 10s. Something, something, 10,000 and five. So you want it, yeah. All broke um, down between 20, 10s, and fives. After two to four days, we will inform you something where, you, where to deliver right. the money. We warn you something, something, anything. Waking? Walking? Waking? Uh, anything? Oh, we warn you something making anything public. Right. Or notifying the police. Or notifying the police. The child is in safe care. Something, something for a follow-up. All right. I'm... Follow-up? 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 Or something. I don't know. Whoever wrote this wow. has the shittiest handwriting in the world. Right. Holy moly. 
Uh, there was a third ransom note that was received by Lindbergh's attorney on March 8th, informing that an intermediary appointed by the Lindberghs would not be accepted and requested a note in a newspaper. Uh, on the same date, Dr. John F. Condon, Bronx, New York City, who was a retired school principal, published in the Bronx Home News and offered to act as go-between and to pay an additional $1,000 ransom. Huh. They're already asking for seventy. Right. Uh, the following day, the fourth ransom note was received by Dr. Condon, which indicated he would be acceptable as a go-between. This was approved by Lindbergh, and about March 10, 1932, Dr. Condon received 70000 in cash as a ransom and immediately started negotiations for payment through newspaper columns using the code name Jaffsey. Okay. Oh, dang, so they didn't even call on the phone or nothing? Right. Well, I guess now. Around 8.30 p.m., 12th March, after receiving an anonymous phone call, Dr. Condon received fifth ransom note delivered by Joseph Perrone a taxi cab driver who received it from an unidentified stranger. Mm, that sounds like a mafia guy. Right. The message Perone. Right. The message stated that another note would be found beneath a stone at a vacant stand 100 feet from an outlying subway station. They have uh, uh, $5 footlongs over there. <laughs> this note, the sixth, was found by Condon as indicated. Following instructions therein, the doctor met an unidentified man who called himself John. Just call me John. At Woodlawn Cemetery, oh geez, near 233rd Street and Jerome Avenue. So he's going to meet a guy named John at Woodlawn Cemetery, right? Okay, they discussed payment of the ransom money. The stranger agreed to furnish a token of the child's identity. Condon was accompanied by a bodyguard while, except while talking to John. During the next few days, Dr. Condon repeated his advertisements, urging further contact and stating his willingness to pay the ransom. Okay, why is doctor? I don't get it. Dr. Condon paying the ransom. Because well, he's the go-between guy. Right. Um, they're willing to pay. I don't understand why this is, they're right. taking it all crazy like this. Right. Well, a baby's sleeping suit as a token of identity and a seventh ransom note were received by Dr. Condon on March 16th. The suit was delivered to Lindbergh and later identified. He's like, no, that is my baby, boys. <laughs> right. Condon continued his advertisements. The eighth ransom note was received by Condon on March 21st, insisting on complete compliance and advising that the kidnapping had been planned for a year. Wrong. They're already in compliance. I don't understand. Right. What is going on here? He's already put out advertisements saying, we're in compliance. We got the ransom money. Right. What the hell is going on? Really? Dang. 29th March, Betty Gow, the Lindbergh nurse, found the infant's thumb guard. Thumb guard? So they probably won't suck their thumb or something. Oh, Warren at the time of the kidnapping near the entrance to the estate. The following day, the ninth ransom note was received by Wait, Condon. Wait, so how she find this over two weeks later and the cops right. didn't find it? Right. There's no way. Hmm. I'm trying to remember this. I don't remember the details. The following day, the ninth ransom note has re was received by Condon, threatening to increase the demand to 100000 Why? And refusing a code for, for use in newspaper columns. They're still making the, the money keeps on going up and up and up, and these guys were like, guys "Dude, are already like, hey, we already said we'd pay the seventy. Right. Wow. Well, there was a tenth ransom note, which was received by Doctor Condon on the first of April, nineteen thirty-two, instructed him to have the money ready the following night. To which Condon replied by an ad in the press. <laughs> The eleventh ransom note was delivered to Condon on the second of April, nineteen thirty-two, by an unidentified taxi driver who said he received it from an unknown man. Doctor Condon found the. How, you'd think somebody would get these guys' names. You're not going to identify this taxi driver. Un, 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 unidentified taxi driver, right? Hmm. 
Dr. Condon found the 12th ransom note under a stone in front of a greenhouse at 3225 East Tremont Avenue in Bronx, New York, as instructed in the 11th note. So we got 12. All we're doing is like... We're getting notes back and forth saying, you better pay. Yeah, we will pay. Since you're not paying, 75. <laughs> but wait, we just said we pay. No. We'll pay the 75, yeah. We, we used to like writing notes and hiding them under rocks. <laughs> that's all that's happening here. Shortly thereafter that, on the same evening, by following the instructions contained in the 12th note, Condon again met with whom he believed to be John to reduce the demand of 50000 Oh, jeez. This amount was handed to the stranger in exchange for a receipt. <laughs> And the 13th note containing instructions to the effect that the kidnapped child could be found on a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Wait, so he hey. gave him the 50000 right now? I think so. This amount was handed to the stranger right. in exchange for a receipt. But <laughs> Okay. I got it. Text right off. <laughs> right. Kidnapping. Right. Um, the stranger then walked north into the park woods. The following day, an unsuccessful search for the baby was made near Martha's Vineyard. An unsuccessful, unsuccessful search. Unsuccessful. The search was later repeated. Dr. Conan was positive that he would recognize John if he ever saw him again. I would hope so. Right. 12th of May, 1932. The body of the kidnapped baby was accidentally found, partly buried, and badly decomposed. Mm. About four and a half miles southeast of the Lindbergh home. 45 feet from the highway. Near Mount Rose, New Jersey, in Mercer County. And so they're having all these letters delivered in the Bronx, New York, when really they were, the baby was already dead in I think, New Jersey. I think we're on to something here. I don't remember if they did an autopsy and all that. Yeah, I, I, don't, we'll, I don't know, but. I guess we'll find out. With the ladder being broke, yeah. it sounds like something happened to the baby right. there. Instantly. And then they were like, oh shit, we got to keep this going. Hopefully right. we can still get the money. Mm, I think so, because just how many? Four miles. Yeah. Four and a half miles. So they got four miles and away, and they're like, oh, man. Badly decomposed, and it was only been two months. So how long does it take for a body to de- decompose? Oh, so here we go. Caused death and blow to the head. Yeah. He fell. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, they fell from that ladder. The discovery was made by Willem Allen, an assistant on a truck driven by Orville Wilson. The head was crushed. There was a hole in the skull, and some of the body members were missing. Jeez, so they, wait, okay. Oh, jeez. Maybe eight. Uh, coyote or something. The body was positively identified and cremated as Tr- at Trenton, New Jersey on the 13th of May, 1932. The coroner's examination showed that the child had been dead for about two months and that death was caused by a blow to the head. Yeah. So the child was dead as soon as... Soon. Because it was in March. Right. April, May. It's only been two months. Right. Yeah. Instant. Mm-hmm. I think something happened with that ladder. Yeah. On uh. March 2nd, there we go. March 2nd, 1932, after a conference with the Attorney General, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had, well, this dude's still in the middle of chasing down, duh, um, Machine Gun Kelly and all those guys. 1930, um, Capone. This dude's got his hands full. He does. Maybe you should take it easy on the guy. No. No. Well, he contacted the headquarters of the New Jersey State Police at Trenton. He officially informed the organization that the U.S. Department of Justice would afford Colonel H. Norman Colonel H. Norman Schwartzkopf, superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, the assistance and cooperation of the FBI in bringing about the apprehension of the parties responsible for the kidnapping. So now we got the FBI involved oh, in this. Man. He advised the New Jersey State Police that they could call upon the Bureau for any facilities or resources which the latter might be capable of extending. The special agent in charge of the New York City Office of the Bureau which at the time covered the New Jersey district, 
was instructed accordingly and upon instructions from the director, the special agent in charge communicated with the New Jersey State Police and the New York City Police, offering any assistance which the Bureau might be so, able to lend. So basically that whole paragraph. Ex- <laughs> repeated exactly what Edgar Hoover said. Hey, 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 if you guys need anything, just remember. Anything at all. That's, that's what Jay said. Right. Like, I'm just saying. I'm going to reiterate it. Amen. During the next few weeks, the Bureau was, the Buru was acting <laughs> merely in an auxiliary capacity, there being no federal jurisdiction. Mm. <clears throat> How is there no federal jurisdiction? Right. Everything is, right? However, How on May 13th, 1932, the same day the kid was found, I believe, the president directed that all governmental investigative agencies should place themselves at the disposal of the state of New Jersey, that the FBI should serve as a clearinghouse and okay. coordinating agency for all investigations in this case conducted by federal investigative units. Nice. Okay. So they're getting on this. Well, this all has a lot to do with that this is a freaking high known, high known guy. Well, obviously. So... What did Lindbergh do? Didn't he, like, fly around the world or some shit? I don't think that was Lindbergh, was it? Uh, he did something. Yeah, winning the, making the first non-stop flight from New York to Paris, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you're famous for. 23rd of May, 1932. The FBI and New York City informed banks in Greater New York that the Bureau was the coordinating agency for all governmental activity in this case. So, you guys need something, you come to us. You guys find something, you know something, you Call hear something. Us. Yeah. Yeah. A close watch for ransom money was requested. You watch out for that ransom money. Why would they give the money before having the kid? Like, <clears throat> that's how they did it back then. Man. Yes. And how do they know if it's oh, obviously the marked bills. Obviously, it says ransom on them. <laughs> Lindbergh, <laughs> Lindbergh <laughs> ransom. Lindbergh baby ransom money. <laughs> you think they're gonna know? Nah, <laughs> they don't read it. New Jersey. No, they just put. Uh, they write, this is not right. before. <laughs> this is not Lindbergh's baby. This is clean money. <laughs> See, it says right here. Good. All right, we're Let's good. go spend it. Oh, man. The New Jersey State Police announced on the 26th of May, 1932, they offer a reward not to exceed up to $25,000 for information resulting in apprehension and conviction of the kidnapper or kidnappers. That's pretty shitty. Right. I'm only going to give you $25,000 for this information, but... right. They have to be convicted as well. They have to be convicted, right. yes. Mm. In compliance with the request made by Colonel Schwartenkopf, copies of this notice of reward were forwarded by the FBI to all law enforcement officials and agencies throughout the whole United States. Dang. And they even said, how about this East Coast? No. No. I want in L.A. tomorrow. Okay. Right. Oh, L.A., there's, Dallas. There's something interesting. On the 10th of June in 1932, Violet Sharp, who was a waitress in the home of Miss Lindbergh's mother, in the home of her, hmm. a waitress in the home, she's right. Miss Dwight Morrow, who's uh, Lindbergh's mom, she had been under investigation, not her mom, the Violet Sharp chick is under investigation by the authorities. Right. She committed suicide by swallowing poison when she was about to be re-questioned. Oh. However... However, her movements on the night of March 1st, 1932, had been carefully checked, and it was soon definitely ascertained that she had no connection with the abduction. Just because she wasn't there doesn't mean that she didn't give somebody information on how to get there. Why did she. Wait a minute here. She knew something, obviously. She doesn't kill herself for no reason. Yeah, she knew something. She didn't want to be waterboarded. She was like, I know I'll crack. Yeah, just because just cause she wasn't at the residence or she had an alibi of where she was doesn't mean right. she didn't tell somebody, oh, they're having a party this night. All you got to do is put a ladder up on the window. The baby's always there by itself. And she was weak, and for the past week or so, she was getting a hold of the actual kidnapper. She'd be like, I, I don't know. It's all right, Ma. 
It's all right. Don't worry. I don't know if I can handle it. Ma? Well, whatever. You're assuming that it's it's mama? Never know. Mm -hmm. September 1933, President FDR stated in a meeting with Director Hoover that all work on the case can be centralized in the Department of Justice. DOJ can do this, guys. He requested the director to convey his views to the Attorney General Cummings with the suggestion that the Attorney General make a request of the Commissioner of Internal Revenue Service. Man, bring the IRS up in this shit. <laughs> Actually, yeah, you want to find somebody. The IRS should right. do everything. Right. Yeah, so you want the Attorney General to make a request to the IRS, either through the President or directly, for a detailed report of all work performed by IRS intelligence units. For what? Right. October 19th, 1933, it was officially announced that the FBI would have exclusive jurisdiction in so far as the federal government was concerned in the case handling of any investigative features of this case. So they're like, look, man, might as just take it over. Yeah. Mm, The president's proclamation requiring the return to the treasury of all gold and gold certificates was a valuable aid in the case in as much as... $40,000 $40,000 of the ransom money had been paid in gold certificates, oh. and at the time of the proclamation, a large portion of this money was known to be outstanding. Therefore, this phase of the investigation was emphasized. Did he do it for the robbery, or did he do it as wartime, right? I don't know. Oh, no, this is only 32. Right. So why is he doing that? And why would you take ransom with money? Gold, certif- well, and- gold certificates were just as good as money. Right, basically, because the gold's probably at the right. bank already. But still, why did he recall gold certificates and stuff? Because I think they paid in. No, I'm saying he did it for the whole country. Mm. Something had been going on there. <clears throat> yeah. Executive Order 6 required all persons to deliver on or before May 1st, 1933, all but a small amount of gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates owned by them to the Federal Reserve in exchange for $20 per troy ounce. Equivalent to 413. Dang, so they're getting paid. They just want all the gold. And anything that had to do with gold, that's why they're getting ready for the uh, for the Federal Reserve. Man, they're doing this early. There's a limitate. They just wanted to limit the amount of gold people can own. No, they wanted it. No, yeah. that's what happened. Yeah, um, it was repealed by George or Gerald Ford after he legalized ownership of gold coins, bars, and certificates in '74. So. FDR knew something was happening. You know why? Hitler, Hitler yeah. was already you know in power. You know why Gerald Ford signed that? Because gold don't matter shit now. Because it ain't even backed by gold anymore. Right. Stated reason for the order was that hard times had caused hoarding of gold. Right. So you're going to forcefully take away people's gold because it's theirs? It's like hoarding cash. What's right. the difference? Like, you guys got to turn all over your $20 bills. All your riches, mine. Well, and we'll give you this note. <laughs> yeah, and worsening the depression in the U.S., uh, was can... then the gold standard for his currency. Yeah, because the Federal Reserve wasn't even out yet. Not yet. Oh, dude, these guys. Uh-huh. See, and everybody says FBR was the greatest president. Dude was a no. crook just as much as the other crooks. Yeah. Now, back to the Lindbergh case. <laughs> I just want to know why he did that. Right. So. right, 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 right. The president's proclamation requiring the return right. of the Treasury of all gold and gold certificates was a valuable aid in the case. Right, as we already oh, heard. Right. 17th January, 1934. A circular letter was issued by the New York City Bureau Office to all banks and their branches in New York City. New York York City! (laughs) Requesting an extremely close watch for the ransom certificates. And in February of 1934, all Bureau offices were supplied with copies of the Bureau's revised pamphlet containing the special serial numbers of the ransom bills. 
The New York City Bureau Office distributed copies of this pamphlet to each employee handling currency in banks, clearinghouses, grocery stores, and in certain selected communities, insurance companies, gasoline filling stations, airports, department stores, post offices, and telegraph companies. How about companies. this? Just say every store. Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. Uh, following the distribution of these booklets containing the serial numbers, uh, there were also prepared and similarly distributed by the Bureau currency key cards, which, in convenient form, set forth the inclusion set forth the inclusive serial numbers of all the ransom notes which had been paid. <clears throat> this was followed by frequent personal contacts with bank officials and with individual employees in an effort to keep alive their interests. Prior to this time, the passing of ransom bills had been reported to either the FBI, the New Jersey State Police, or the New York City Police Department, hmm. none of which had complete information on this point. Oh. Therefore, arrangements were affected whereby investigation of all such ransom bills detected in the future could immediately could be immediately conducted jointly by representatives of the three interested agencies. Oh, <laughs> Basically, information was for everybody. They all had it, and they all worked with each other, basically. And oh, prior to this time, the past and ransom bills have only been reported to the FBI, the New York right. State Police, or the uh, New York Police Department, none of which had completed complete information on this point. Therefore, arrangements were affected whereby investigation of all some ransom bills detected in the future could be immediately conducted jointly right. by representatives. Oh, right. So they all didn't know. Or, right. Yeah. You know, okay. Now they're all working. Now they're all on the same page. Now we're on the same page here. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. Jeez, oh, Pete, guys. One of the byproducts of the case was a mass of misinformation received from the well-meaning but uninformed, highly imaginative individuals and a deluge of letters written by demented people, publicity seekers, and frauds. Hey, so, so it was Twitter. Right. Everything that we see today was still going on back then, but these guys mm-hmm. actually can get away with it a lot easier. It was essential, however, that all possible clues, regardless of the prospect of success, be carefully followed. You got to. And it was impossible in the vast majority of instances to determine at the inception whether they would be material or false. So... They're doing a lot of, I think, more uh, intense investigation on this than we've. They're seen investigating in, uh, like, the bank robberies. They're investigating. Like they're they're following up on leads that they know are hundred percent not, but still doing it. But anyways. still doing it. Right. Wow. Well, Lindbergh and Pole, I guess. On the fourth of March, nineteen thirty-two, a con man named Gaston B. Means was approached by Miss Evelyn Walsh McLean of Washington D.C., who felt that she might be of material assistance to Lindbergh in procuring the return of his child. Hmm. Isn't that just like three days after the kidnapping? Not too far, right? Nineteen thirty-two. It was March first, wasn't it? I think so. Right, March first. Yeah, March first. Right. So now we're going back to March fourth, and she says, "I think I might. I can help you." Hmm. Um. Miss McLean had become acquainted with Means as a result of some investigative work which Means had performed for her husband some years before. Means informed her that he felt certain he could secure a contact with the kidnappers inasmuch as he had been invited to participate in a big cat. He had been invited to participate in a big kidnapping some weeks before but had declined. Mm. Oh, so this guy. So she's a shady person too. Right. Even uh, talking to this guy, she knew he was a con man and and a weirdo anyways. Right. Hmm. Well, Means claimed that his friend was responsible for the Lindbergh kidnapping. The following day, Means reported to Mrs. Lean, McLean that he had made contact with the persons who had the child. He successfully induced Mrs. McLean to hand over to him $100,000 to be used in paying the ransom, which had 
the, the ransom was said to be doubled. So it started at 50, now it's 100. Until April 17, 1932, he kept Mrs. McLean waiting, daily expecting the return of the child. During this period, he purported to be effecting negotiations with the alleged leader of the kidnappers, whom he called the Fox. The Fox, man, I got to talk to the Fox. Just let me talk to the Fox. I got you. I know, I know it's been a couple of weeks. Let me talk to the Fox. It takes time. Mrs. McLean finally requested she returned $100,000. Right. Mr. Yeah, Mrs. McLean finally requested that the hundred thousand dollars be returned and additional money which she had advanced him for expenses. Wait, dang, she's just paying this guy to go back and Wait forth. Wait a minute. So this chick was negotiating the kid's release <clears throat> while with Lindbergh, this guy, while Lindbergh and the other guy was negotiating, and she paid a hundred grand. She paid a hundred grand of her own money, apparently, and then Lindbergh paid, and then Lindbergh paid the fifty. Oh my. What in the hell is going on? Why is she doing this by herself? Right, and she paid for expenses for the means guy to go back and forth. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Well, when he failed to return the money, the case was turned over to the FBI, you think. Means and the quote-unquote box, who was found to be Norman T. Whitaker, Uh a disbarred Washington attorney, were apprehended, and Means was later convicted of embezzlement and larceny after trust and sentenced to serve 15 years in federal penitentiary. Okay. Whitaker and Means were later convicted of conspiracy to defraud and were sentenced to serve two years each in the federal penitentiary. All right. There were other attempted frauds which required extensive investigations before they could be completely eliminated from consideration. Um, what an idiot this girl is. Right. Wow. Stupid. Wow. Dang, so other people are making money off of it and they didn't even do nothing. It <laughs> makes no sense, though. She. It says that she contacted... A con man was approached. Yeah, she was well, approached by McLean. Oh, so they didn't, she didn't say nothing until the money was right. Returned. Okay, I thought they said that she she approached Lindbergh about it too. No, when he well, yeah, so yeah. she's just over there doing it all by herself, like right. trying to be a good Samaritan, I guess. And like, he got screwed. Yeah. Wow. In all, there were literally thousands of leads in all sections of the United States, which were followed to their definite conclusions by the FBI. The results of all these investigations, no matter how trivial, were reported. The activities of the known and sus- the activities of the known and suspected members of the so-called Purple Gang of Detroit, and various rumors and allegations concerning this gang were carefully and thoroughly investigated. Numerous registries of boats were examined in a fruitless endeavor to locate the boat Nelly, which obviously doesn't exist, right? On which the baby was to have been found, according to the thirteenth and last ransom hotel. Hotel, the ransom note, which we all Welcome know, to the ransom hotel. <laughs> right? We we all know that the baby was not at any boat called Nelly because they cannot find a boat called Nelly, supposedly by this guy named John. Jeez, these guys are idiots. Right? And it's not even the FBI this time. It's just well, it is. It was no. It was the go-to guy. Right? These guys are idiots, dude. Records of cemetery employees who were employed by various cemeteries in certain sections of New York City near Hopewell, New Jersey, were examined. Information accumulated in various other kidnapping and extortion cases handled by the FBI was examined in closest detail and studied with particular reference to any bearing that they might have upon the solution of the Lindbergh case. Hundreds of photographs and descriptive data of known criminals of all types and other possible suspects were exhibited to the few eyewitnesses in this case in the endeavor to identify the mysterious John. Okay. So we got to find this John guy. Yeah, yeah, John's the key, apparently. Huh? All right. Well, obviously. Second of May. He's the one that took the money. Right. Second of May, 1933. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York discovered 
$296 gold certificates oh, and go. one $20 gold certificate, all Lindbergh ransom notes. Oh, oh okay. These bills were included among the currency received at the Federal Reserve Bank on the 1st of May, 1933. So they complied. All right. Turned their shit in, got their money, and probably gone now. Right. And apparently had been made in one deposit. One, one day. All right. And had been made in one deposit. Immediately upon the discovery of these bills, deposit tickets at the Federal Reserve Bank on the 1st of May were examined, so everything that was there we need first of May now. Pronto. One was found bearing the name and address of J.J. Faulkner, 537 West 149th Street, and had marked therein gold certificates, $10 and $20, in the amount of $29.80, despite extensive, that's $2,980, not $29.80. Uh, despite extensive investigation, this depositor was never located. So J.J. Faulkner. $296 $10 gold certificates plus a $20 gold certificate. So they paid, they paid $10 per certificate and got twenty nine eighty. Right. It's not what the damn thing said. No. I think that they was They were his, paying yeah, $20. $20 oh, per troy ounce. Okay. Right. So if it's only $10 in gold, that's all they're getting. It's, it's, obviously, it's right. only $10 in gold. $10. Um, okay. So okay. these guys got twenty nine eighty. Where's the others? Right, there's a lot more. Forty seven thousand. There's a lot more. Uh, yeah, depositor was never located. Good. Never. Okay. You even know where he lives. Yeah, five thirty seven West one hundred forty ninth Street. Jeez, that's two <laughs> run down it. <laughs> Examination of the ransom notes by handwriting experts resulted in a virtually unanimous unanimous opinion that all the notes were written by the same person and that the writer was of German nationality Obviously. but had spent some time in America. Okay. Dr. Condon described John as Scandinavian oh, no. and believed Damn he could Vikings. identify the man. Uh, Dr. Condon spent considerable time in viewing the numerous photographs of possible suspects. In this connection, the FBI retained the services of an artist to prepare a portrait of John, from oh. also known as a sketch, right. from descriptions that uh, Dr. Condon provided. Okay. And from Joseph Perone, the taxi driver, who had delivered one of the ransom letters. Yeah, but what about the unknown taxi driver? I mean, come on. Right. <sighs> How do we not locate that guy? Right. In further endeavor to identify the individual who received the ransom payment, representatives of the New York City Bureau Office engaged Dr. Condon to prepare a, tan a, to prepare a transcript of all conversations had by him with John. On the second, on the twelfth of March and the second of April, the dates on which Dr. Condon personally contacted Cadaver in order to negotiate the return of the child and the payment of the ransom. These conversations were during March, nineteen thirty-four, transcribed in detail on a phonograph record. How is the detail? This is two years later, right? By Dr. Condon, who imitated the pronunciations and dialect yeah. and dialect of John. In this manner, nationality, education, mentality, and the character of the kidnapper were more clearly defined and permanently preserved for the future. Permanently preserved. Right. Another interesting attempt to identify the kidnapper centered around the ladder used in the crime. Hey, now we're getting somewhere. Police quickly realized that it was crudely built. Oh, they so they brought their own ladder. Oh, no. But built nonetheless by someone familiar with wood who was mechanically inclined. Was really, he? Really, right? he Broken really, half. Really doesn't take much to build a ladder. Build a ladder. I mean, um, the ladder had been thoroughly examined for fingerprints and had been exhibited to builders, carpenters, and neighbors of the Lindberghs in vain. Okay. So slivers of the ladder even had been analyzed, and the types of wood used in the ladder had been identified. Okay. okay. I mean, easily done. Pine. No, that's a soft wood. You don't want to make a ladder out of pine. No, you gotta get something hard, like oak or something. Yeah. Uh, perhaps a complete examination of the ladder by itself. 
by a wood expert would yield additional clues, and in early Clearly. 1932, such an expert was called Arthur Kohler of the Forest Service, United States Department of Agriculture. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> to the rescue. Mm. Kohler disassembled the ladder and painstakingly identified the types of wood used and examined tool marks. Painstakingly? If you're a wood guy, you should know already what type of wood. Right. He also looked at the pattern made by nail holes, for it appeared likely that some wood had been used before in an indoor in construction. Mm. Okay. Kohler made field trips to the Lindbergh estate and to factory. Field right. On field trip, guys. Pack your lunch. And to factories to trace some of the wood. He summarized his findings in a report and later played a critical role in the trial of the kidnapper. Mm. Well, for a period of seven months prior to August 24th, 1934, no gold certificates were discovered except for those received that we already mentioned. Right. Started on August, starting on August 20th, 1934, and extending into September, a total of 16 gold certificates were discovered, most of them in the vicinity of Yorkville and Harlem. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Those guys, you know, they got a they got a, a vicinity where this guy's at. A vicinity. The long-awaited opportunity had finally arrived. As each bill was recovered, a colored pin marking the location of the recovered bill was inserted in a large map of the metropolitan area, thus indicating the movements of the individual or individuals who might be passing the ransom money. Hmm. Right. Okay, so now they're getting somewhere. When the first few made their appearances, it was decided to concentrate on gold certificates, as experience had proven the fertility of tracing the ordinary currency included in the ransom money. They're like, yeah, that's going to be hard. Right. In keeping with the cooperative policy previously established with New Jersey State Police and the New York City Police Department, teams composed of a representative of each of these police agencies and a special agent of the Bureau were organized to personally contact all banks in the greater New York and Westchester County. So that's a big area. Yeah. Uh, as a result, the various neighborhood banks, <laughs> friendly neighborhood banks, <laughs> as a result, the various neighborhood banks discovered the bills close to the point at which they were passed and it then became possible for the investigators to trace the bills to the person who had originally passed them. For the first time in the history of the case, the investigators succeeded in finding that the description of the individual passing these bills fit none other than the exact description of John as described by Dr. Uh oh, so we're getting a, a, a description of John? A description of John. Oh, jeez. It was determined through the investigation that the bills were being passed principally at the corner produce stores all oh, around the area. So. He's going to the produce stores, huh? Mm -hmm. I mean, they did do grocery stores and select locations, but... Right. Yeah. Maybe not produce. They're like, ah, produce. Who's going to use gold certificates at produce stores? Right. Who's going to buy an apple with a gold certificate? All right. You take, you take gold certificates? <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah, we do. About 1.20 p.m., September 18, 1934, the assistant manager of the Corn Exchange Bank dang, and Trust Company at 125th Street and Park Avenue, New York City, telephoned the New York City Bureau office to advise that a $10 gold certificate had been discovered a few minutes previously by one of the tellers in that bank. Hmm. Like, hey, we got one of I got a golden ticket. That, 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 um, I'm going to call man. the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> I got to. I got to tell them that we found a golden certificate. I got a ransom note. <laughs> I got to tell him that it could be done. We can find this bastard that, that killed Lindbergh's son. <laughs> <laughs> because, 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 because that's what should be done. Because we found a $10 golden ticket. 
It was soon a certain that this bill had been received at the bank from a gasoline station oh, located gasoline. at the 127th Street and Lexington Avenue, New York City station. So not too far away from uh, Park Avenue right there. A couple streets over, man. Now we're getting somewhere. It took a while. You got to wait for these uh, golden tickets. to. Now we're cooking with peanut oil. Right. You got to wait for these uh, golden tickets to you surface. You knew they were going to have to show up eventually. This is two years later now. So. Right. You think, all right, man. You should have just went all over the place, and then should have went to the other side of the country at least. Right, idiots. I mean, fifty grand in in nineteen thirty-two. You're pretty rich. You could have done a little two-week travel. Casinos were there. Casinos back then. Uh, yeah, yeah. Of course there were. Vegas. Of course there were. Uh, September fifteenth, nineteen thirty-four. An alert attendant had received a bill in payment for five gallons of gasoline. Oh. From a man whose description fitted closely that of the individual who had passed other bills in recent weeks, the filling station, the filling station attendant, being suspicious of the ten dollars gold certificate recorded on the bill, the license number of the automobile driven by the purchaser. Good for you, gasoline right. station attendant. This license number was issued to Bruno Richard Hopman at seven or twelve seventy nine East two hundred twenty second Street, Bronx, New York. This guy was up on the old uh, case, huh? There's the Bronx connection where all the letters were getting right. uh, placed and stuff. So, okay, so finally got somebody that's uh up on the uh, on the business of what's going on here, right? Because first of all, you don't have any other money on you besides a gold certificate that you're right. purchasing gas with it. I and guess you got to get rid of them somehow. But back then, how how often was it somebody paid with a gold? That's certificate? That's what I'm saying. Like this guy, like I've never seen this before. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure I just read an article in the yeah, Times. Uh, be careful of gold certificates, right? <laughs> and two years, three years, or two a uh, year ago, these all should have been handed in. So why does this guy have one anyways? That's true. Yeah. So, mm. After some investigating, he was found to be Bruno Richard no. Humptman. No. Humptman's house was closely surveilled by federal and local authorities throughout the night of September 18, 1934, until approximately 9 a.m. on September 19th. An individual closely fit in the description of John, as supplied by Dr. Condon, and the description of the purchaser of the gasoline, as supplied by the services station attendant, <laughs> left his house and entered his automobile parked nearby. Well, it should be. All right. <laughs> Down the block. Well, walk six Down blocks in my car. All right. He was promptly taken into custody by representatives of the three interested agencies. <laughs> There's only Dang. three. <laughs> the other agencies, yeah, we're not interested. Not you guys, interested. You guys interested in one? Nah. Uh, you we're take not, this you one. guys go ahead. After some investigating, he was found to be Bruno Richard Hoffman, okay. the individual to whom the automobile license had been issued. Well, there you go. A German carpenter, German carpenter. Oh, no. Who had been in this country for approximately 11 years. Okay. A $20 gold ransom certificate was found on his person. Oh, no. His description fitted perfectly that of John as described by Dr. Condon, and in his house was found a pair of shoes which had been purchased with a $20 ransom bill recovered on September 8, 1934. Okay. Damn, they know the exact pair of shoes. Uh, I'm sure they do. Yeah, they probably... What did he purchase with it? Right. So... Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Hompton admitted... Several other purchases, which had been made with ransom certificates. So I got made many purchases with those certificates. Why? What's your point here? On the night of 19th September, he was positively identified by Joseph Perone as the individual from whom he had received the fifth ransom note uh, to be delivered to Dr. Condon. 
The following day, ransom certificates in excess of $13,000 were found hidden in the garage at Hampton's residence. Hoptman's residence. Shortly thereafter, he was identified by Dr. Condon as John. Yep, that's John. There's to whom the ransom... Yeah, that's, that's who I paid that ransom money to. That's him. It was also certain that he was... Ascertained. Right. It was also factual that he was in the possession of a Dodge sedan automobile, which answered the description that had been seen in the vicinity well, of the Lindbergh home. the first time we're hearing home. about the Dodge right. uh, sedan anyway. So. so there was a Dodge sedan by the Lindbergh home the day prior to the kidnapping, like casing the joint, right? How do people do that anyways? Especially back then. Right. And Lindbergh's, you know, his place is probably a humongous place, and there's no reason for you to be driving. Well, no, there. I'm saying, well, not only that, like, there's 100 cars drive by. Well, you know, I saw this one Dodge sedan, I guess. I mean, you always do have that nosy neighbor or something that's monitoring all the traffic and that's I've going by. I've seen the same cars drive down this road every day for 30 years. And I never saw that one. Never seen that one before. Shortly after his hap- apprehension, specimens of Halton's handwriting were flown to Washington, D.C., where a study was made of them in the FBI laboratory. Okay. A comparison of the writing appearing on the ransom notes with that of the specimens disclosed remarkable similarities Uh-oh. and inconspicuous oh, no. personal characteristics and writing habits, which resulted in a positive identification by the handwriting experts of the lab. Upon the apprehension of him, Hoffman, it was found that he bore a striking resemblance to the portrait of John. Well, we already knew that. Right. Which had previously been... Pre- yes, we know. Yes, he's John. Yes, right. Further investigation developed that Hoffman, 35 years old, was a native of Saxony, Germany. He had a criminal record for robbery and has spent time in prison. Early in July 1923, he stowed away aboard the SS Hanover at Bremen. That's in Germany. It could be Bremen, who knows, or Bremen, however they say it. Bremen. And arrived in the port of New York City on 13th July 1923. He was arrested, deported immediately. After another failed attempt in early August, uh, Hauptmann successfully entered the United States in November of that very same year. Took him a while. We got right. in, though. Third time's charm. On board of the George Washington, of course. <laughs> got across the Potomac. <laughs> or the Delaware. Yeah, the Delaware. <laughs> October 10th, 1925. Hopton married Anna Schofler, a New York How City waitress. Married? Right. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, it is 1925, kind of like the height of immigration and right, shit back then. Right, so. right, right, right. right. She, uh, she is a New York City waitress at some place. A son, Manfred, was born to them in 1933. Oh. Oh, man, Same is, year. All right. Darren is illegal. Well, a year later. A year later after the kidnapping. Right. Darren has illegal stay in New York City and until spring of 1932, Hampton, Hampton, Hampton followed his occupation of carpenter. He liked, he liked to work with wood. However, However, a short while after the 1st of March 1932, the date of the kidnapping, Hauptmann's began to trade rather extensively in stocks and never worked well, again. Well, I'm sure he did. Wow. Well, Hauptmann was Indicted! Indicted! In the Supreme Court, Bronx County, New York, on charges of extortion on September 26, 1934, and on, and on October 8, 1934, in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, he was indicted for murder. Oh, no. Two days later, the governor of the state of New York honored the requisition of the governor of the state of New Jersey for the surrender of Bruno Richard Hauptman, and on October 19th, he was removed to the Hunterdon County Jail, Flemington, New Jersey, to await trial. Man. I still think something happened. I don't remember exactly how. Does he say what happens? The trial Hopman began on 3rd January, <laughs> 1935, <laughs> at, at Flemington, Hauptman. New Jersey. Hauptman, probably. Hauptman. Lasted five weeks, this trial did. 
It's pretty long. It is. The case against him was based on circumstantial evidence. That's why. Yeah. Two marks on a ladder match tools owned by Hauptman. Oh, come on, anybody. Wood in a ladder was found to match wood used as flooring in his attic. Oh. So, I mean, Why wouldn't there be flooring missing? You're Unless right. he had scrap. Right. Dr. Condon's telephone number and address were found scrawled on a door frame inside a closet. What the hell? How's oh, the circumstantial no. evidence now? Everybody, Wait, we didn't hear this about the- This is, well, they're just now, it's in the trial. That's why. Um, How's this all circumstantial? <laughs> right. He was just randomly got Dr. Condon's number. Well, why would it still be there? I mean, I guess. And you could, yeah, the la- the tools you can match because there's certain might be like chips in the, in the hammer or the. The way the hammer the strikes. Or, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Handwriting on the ransom notes match samples to Hopman's handwriting. We already know that. Got that. You got a picture of uh, old Charlie Lindbergh on this trial, on the stand, witness stand. Um, it's a pretty shitty court. That's a pretty shitty photo. That guy looks. <laughs> he looks like he's dead. And that lady. And so is she, dude. They all. Yeah. Like they're all moving, probably though. Yeah, they are. On February thirteenth, nineteen thirty-five, the jury returned a verdict, and you already know what it was going to be. Yeah. Hoffman was guilty of murder in the first degree. Murder in the first degree. The sentence. It should be not premeditated, I guess. Well, he said it was been. Uh, well, yeah, they didn't plan to murder, just kidnap. The sentence, death. I want to know what he testified. Right. Yeah, I know what he said. How it happened. What happened. Right. Why? Well, d- he probably didn't. Uh, he didn't. Uh, didn't do nothing. He didn't, he didn't um, plead guilty. Right. So. The defense appealed, obviously. The Supreme Court of the State of New Jersey on October 9, 1935, upheld the verdict of the lower court. Hoffman's appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States was denied on September or December 9th of the same year, and was he was to be electrocuted uh, January 17, 1936. That was Uh-oh. quick. Damn. However, quick. However, on the same day, the governor of the state of New Jersey granted a 30-day reprieve, and on February 17, 1936, he was resentenced to be electrocuted during the week of March 30th. Of 1936. On March 30th, 1936, the pardon court of the state of New Jersey denied Hoffman's petition for clemency. And on April 3rd, 1936, at 8.47 p.m., Bruno Richard Hoffman was electrocuted. Ooh, electrocuted, man. Gone. Every time I think of that, I think of that Green Mile scene where he didn't put the the water, the sponge on his head. Just fries him. man. Fries Mm. him. In the latter part of 20th century... The case against Hoptman came under serious scrutiny. As they always do. For instance, mm-hmm. one, one item of evidence at his trial was a scrawled phone number on a board in his closet, right. which was the number of the man who delivered the ransom, Condon, which we've said that. A juror at the trial said that this was one of item that convinced him the most. According to some accounts, a reporter later admitted he had written the Whoa. number himself. According to some accounts, a reporter later admitted he'd written the number. Why is the reporter in his house? Huh. A book written by sent a book written by Gregory Elgren called the kid the Lindbergh kidnapping hoax. So we don't know if it's true. Right? Or not. I mean, nah, you can discard that. Supposedly, he said that according to some accounts. We take that what it's worth. Right. Additionally, neither Lindbergh nor the go-between who delivered the ransom initially identified Hauptman as the recipient. So, Mister Condon didn't even initially. He did. Nor the go-between who delivered the ransom money. That's Mr. Conan. He said he... he so he that's John. Out. That's, that's John. I said that's, that's him. That's the guy. Now there's contradicting stories here. Next paragraph. It says, Condon, after seeing Hopman in a lineup at the New York City Police Department in Greenwich Street, at the Greenwich Street Station, told FBI Special Agent Turo 
that Hauptmann was not John. Not John. The man whom Condon claimed he had passed ransom money to. He further stated that Hauptmann looked different. For instance, that he had different eyes, was heavier, had different hair. And that John was actually dead because he had murdered. He was been murdered by his confederates. What? Where? Where? Wow. New evidence, huh? <laughs> what the hell did you just say here? <laughs> right. All right, let's go to that again. The first part. Latter part of the 20th century, the case against Hopman came under scrutiny. Right. For instance, the evidence in the his trial. The number was right. supposedly from the uh, reporter. And the reporter said he didn't. Additionally, right. neither Lindbergh nor the go-between. It was who Mr. Did, Condon. Right. Initially identified Hopman as a recipient, which a few paragraphs up, few we paragraphs. have Condon saying that's this, John. What we just got through doing is the fbi's official report on the right on the the, the case right the official report right mm. condon after seeing haltman in a lineup in the new york police department greenwich street station station told fbi special agent turo that haltman was not john it's not who was the man that whatever he further stated that haltman looked different for instance that he had different eyes was heavier and had different hair and that john was actually dead because he had been murdered by his confederates how the hell would condon know that Right, and not say anything. Who has a memorandum? Memorandum for a file. Turo. He does. A special agent. Right. So that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Yeah, that could be a lie, too. I don't know. That doesn't sound right. While waiting in a car nearby, Lindbergh heard the voice of John, so-called whoever this John guy is, right. calling the condon during the ransom drop-off, but never saw him. So now we're discovering that Lindbergh was actually in the car, in the car. nearby. Although he testified for the Bronx grand jury that he heard only the words, hey, doc, and that it would be very difficult to say he could recognize a man's by his voice. You can't. I don't know. He identified Hoffman as having the same voice during his trial in Flemington. So if somebody talked to him, like, I mean, come on. A lot of people have the same voice. The police beat Hoffman. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> They just they throw that in there after this this little paragraph. This is hilarious. After that, I guess the police beat up Hotman while in custody at the Greenwich Street Station. Uh, Oh, I mean, it's the thirties when he's present. But you think they were blowing the whistles? So they probably were beating them with their clubs. No, they did that in in the Northeast. Um, but still, Lindbergh says right. He heard the name John being called. Right. Calling to Connor. He heard the voice of John. But never saw him. But he said, hey, Doc. Now, he testified before the Bronx grand jury that he heard only the words Doc, right? right. And it would be difficult to recognize a man by his voice. I get it. But he identified Hoffman as having the same voice. So how would he? Yeah, but a lot of people have. That's what I'm saying. So how would he even know that? And then the right. police beat Hoffman while in custody. Right. Uh, other coverage has said that certain witnesses were intimidated. Of course they were. And some claim, yeah, because they were just trying to get this guy for right. Lindbergh. And some claim that the police planted or doctored evidence, of such did. as the latter. Oh, well, no. I don't know. I think the yeah. latter was legit. Or that the police doctored Hoffman's time cards and ignored fellow workers who stated that Hoffman was working the day of the kidnapping. These and other findings prompted J. Edgar Hoover to question the manner in which the investigation and trial were conducted. Uh-oh. Well, this, who's, he's not credible either. Right. Hoffman's widow campaigned until the end of her life to save her husband's conviction reversed. Uh, uh, to have her husband's uh, conviction reversed. I don't know about that. Yeah, see, but it all goes back to the latter, and the baby was already confirmed right. to be dead by two months. I mean, and the which notes. places it pretty much the day of the kidnapping. He admitted to spending notes. They found notes. They found the notes. They found, yeah. 
unless the FBI put him there. Hand but did he ever? No, he admitted. Did, did he ever dispute these in court? Oh, the ones that they found? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I know. Wait, but how did he get the ones that he spent? But even those, even those aren't mine. They planted them there. He never said nothing like that in court. You know what I'm saying? When he, he he's on statement for admitting that the ones that he spent, yeah, he had in possession. So how'd you get those? That's what I'm saying. So if he wasn't the one involved, why? Unless when the police beat him, they were like, "You better not say nothing, and we're gonna kill you in here." Maybe the police are involved. Who knows, dude? Or maybe it was Lindbergh and the family. It's the old uh, John Bonet situation. Right. You know? Ooh, that's still, like, unsolved, isn't it? Yeah, nobody knows. Yeah. They it went between the mom and the dad and the brother and all that stuff and mm-hmm. somebody else. Who knows? It was one of them. Arassus Mead Hudson was a fingerprint expert who knew about the then rare silver nitrate process of collecting fingerprints from wood and other surfaces on which the previous powder method would not work. He found that Hoffman's fingerprints were not on the wood, Uh-oh. even in places that the man who made the ladder must have touched. I mean, right. you're right. You, you have to touch the, the ladder. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere, right. <laughs> Upon reporting this, you you got to kind of <laughs> climb up the ladder, first of all, unless you wear gloves. But I think you're going to be wearing gloves while you're making it. Upon reporting this to a police officer and stating that they must look further, the officer said, Good God! Right. Don't tell us that, doctor! <laughs> great Scott! Great, great Scott! The ladder was then washed of all fingerprints. Oh, no. And Colonel Norman Schwartzkopf Sr., the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, refused to disclose to the public that Hoffman's prints were not on the ladder. Oh, no. Yeah, we've got some uh, sketchy shit going on oh, here yeah. now. Yeah, but, okay, so we know he's involved. So. I just want to let you know, the previous story we were, which we described up until uh, all this, um, di- what is the discrepancies in it, mm. that was all... From the FBI. Now, this is all other sources that are disputing right. the FBI right now. So, right. Of course, the FBI is not going to have any of this in their report. No. Several books have written proclaim Hoptman's innocence. These books variously criticize the police for allowing the crime scenes to become contaminated, which we've seen with the uh, with the reporter, little thumb uh, restrictor well, thing. The reporter writing on the wall of the if number. That's true. Mm-hmm. And the thumb, the thumb guard right. that the, um, the nanny found. Right. On the property right. that, that they didn't find before. Right. Lindbergh and associates were oh, Lindbergh and associates just for interfering with the investigation. So they criticized with Lindbergh, you know, basically saying his I'm the head of the FBI right now. Right. You do what I say. Do it at all costs. Hopman's trials lawyers for ineffectively representing him as they knew. You you don't think his lawyers were getting Chewed out or... Well, obviously. Oh, wow. I'm sure after they took all... They probably seized every all of his money and all that shit, so he had like a little court-appointed bullshit right. fucking guy anyway. That guy was like, uh-uh, I'm not doing nothing. Well, they made sure he didn't do nothing. Like, you better fucking... Uh, or you better freaking make sure he, he fries for this pretty right. much. Right, that's what I'm saying, yeah. You do what you can not. <laughs> you do what you can to not Right. These books also criticize the reliability of the witnesses and the physical evidence presented at the trial. Yeah, okay. Scottish journalist Ludovic Kennedy, or it could be Ludovic. Ludovic? Yeah, probably Ludovic. Or it's Ludovic. Ludovic, yeah, whatever. And in particular, questioned much of the evidence, such as the origin of the latter and the testimony of many of the witnesses. Okay. Yeah, but we still don't. In her book about another high-profile trial in the 1930s, the Winnie Ruth Judd case, investigative reporter Jana Bombersbach 
argued that Hauptmann could not have received a fair trial because the press created an atmosphere of prejudice against him. Bomersbach noted that in those days, newspapers acted as both judge and jury. Hmm. What do you mean, in those days? Right. And covered crime in a way that would be considered sensationalistic. What the hell is that? Sensationalistic? Right. It wouldn't be considered that today. No, because that's exactly what happened in the Kyle Rittenhouse case and every other case. Any other case. Yeah, okay. For more than 50 years, Hauptman's widow fought with the New Jersey courts without success to have the case reopened. In 1982, the now 82-year-old Anna Hauptman sued the state of New Jersey, various former police officers, the Hearst newspapers that had published pretrial articles insisting on his guilt, and former prosecutor David T. Wilentz, who was then 86 at the time, uh, of her uh, lawsuit for over $100 million in the wrongful death damages. She claimed that the newly discovered documents proved misconduct by the prosecution and the manufacture of evidence by government agents all of whom were biased against Hauptmann because he happened to be of German ethnicity. Huh. Um, okay. What's going on in Germany right now? Well, Hitler's already taken over, but he hasn't right. seen no signs of being the guy he's come yet. Right. This year. Uh, well, is, I mean, right. German immigrants were always treated like shit when they came over here, too. So, Yeah, Irish, German, Scottish, right. uh, Italians. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. Jews, blacks, Mexicanos, Mexicans, Spaniards, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, everybody. Whites. 1985, nope, 1983, United States Supreme Court refused her whose request? The wife. What wife? The wife of the Hauptman. Okay. 1983, the United States Supreme Court refused Hauptman's wife's request that the federal judge considering the case should be disqualified because of judicial bias. Mm. And in 1984, the judge dismissed her claims. 1985, more than 23,000 pages of Hopman's case police documents were found in the garage of the late Governor Hoffman. Mm. Oh, my gosh. This dude just took all these documents right. and put them in his garage. These documents, along with 34,000 pages of FBI files, which, although discovered in 1981, had been disclosed to the public. Have not been. Have not been. Represented a windfall of previously undisclosed information. Right, so now they're finding all this treasure trove of documents that are just in this governor's garage and shit. Is this all going to point back to Lindbergh himself? Who knows? Oh, no. As a direct result of this new evidence, Anna Hauptman again amended her civil complaint on July 14, 1986 to clear her late husband's name by continuing to assert that he was framed from beginning to end, uh, uh, Uh so-called Patsy, Uh uh, by the police for... uh, looking for a suspect because at this time probably too because j Edgar hoover they let that guy take over and we already know that he's famous for um mm. covering up the fbi's yes. incompetence mm. and uh doing shit like that so that's not too far-fetched now she, she suggested that the rail of the ladder taken from the attic where they used to live in 1935 was planted by the police and that the ransom money was left behind by isidore fish who who was possibly the real kidnapper was a business associate of Bruno, oh, business associate. Okay, so maybe he wouldn't. So Hauptman might have known something, but maybe he wasn't. Right. Hauptman claimed it fish. I don't care something that we didn't know either. After Hauptman's arrest, police found 14600 of the ransom money in a box in his garage. He claimed that fish had given him a shoebox wrapped with paper and string just before returning to Germany. Hauptman said that when a roof leak damaged the box, he opened it and discovered the money 
claimed that since Fish had owed him 7000 he decided to keep it. So that's how he uh, supposedly came in possession of the money. I could believe that. Hiding it behind some wooden boards in his garage. Why he would he hide? Oh, because the government said you got to... That, and he knew that this guy was a criminal. Right. So he told investigators that he began spending the cash without telling his wife. Mm. The daughter, Hoffman's landlady, told investigators that Fish knew he was extremely ill and that she believed that Fish had money. He would he would have sought medical attention. Medical attention. Fish's siblings and his nurse traveled to New Jersey from Germany to testify at Hoffman's trial. They testified that Fish could not afford medical treatment in his final months and had died a pauper poor. Uh, a few weeks after Fish's death, Hoffman wrote to the family that Fish had left certain articles in his care but made no mention of the shoebox or any money. Why would he? Why would he? Hoffman yeah. was convicted of first-degree murder and kidnapping and electrocuted. Um, yeah, why would he? He wanted his family to have that. Right. then they'll be. Because, well, that, he wanted the money, obviously. Right. Well, if he's going to die, you know he's dying. No, Fish. Yeah, Fish. Hoffman wrote the letter. Said that he had a bunch of stuff that uh, Fish left behind, but didn't say nothing about the money. Okay. I see that. So why yeah. would he say anything about the money? Right. Okay, now it's all starting to make sense. See how that, that's why you can't mm. just trust the FBI, dude. Right. You got to get all these other sources. So Isidore Fish, an associate of this guy, could have been. Which was never even uh, previously mentioned. Uh, right. Mm. Uh, the ransom money was left behind by Isidore Fish, claims Haltman, who was possibly the real kidnapper. Fish applied for a passport on the 12th of May, 1932, the same day that the Lindbergh baby was found dead. I don't think he would have stuck around that long. Right. Maybe. I don't no, know. This not, is weird. No, the baby's been dead for two months. I don't think he's sticking around, bud. That's true, right? Well, he had to wait around to well, get his see money. If he got the money, right? Well, that's all I guess. But he had, they had already had the money for, right, for a couple a, weeks now. Right. Yeah, he should have been long gone. Yeah. 9th of December, 1933. He sailed for Germany, taking with him $600 worth of rice marks. Reichmarks, Reichsmarks. Reichmarks. That's probably the money. Scandinavian money, right? That would be German money. Or, yeah, German money. Yep. Currency of Germany from 24 until 48. All right. Reich, Reich, Reichmarks. 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 Stupid. 1990, New Jersey's governor, James Florio, declined her appeal for a meeting to clear Bruno Hompton's name. Anna Hompton died October 10th, 1994. Uh. In 1974, Anthony Scududo <laughs> <laughs> Anthony wrote Scapegoat, which took the position that Hopman was framed and that the police both withheld and fabricated evidence. This led to further investigation. 1985, Ludovic Kennedy, we already said that, he published The Airman and the Carpenter, in which he argued that Hopman did not kidnap and murder Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. The book was made in 1996 into a television movie. It was called Crime of the Century, starring Stephen Ray and Isabella Rossellini. Mm. Not all modern authors what agree. Crime, it's of Crime of the Century. Not put, all modern authors that. agree with these theories, though, of course. Did they make like another movie about I'm it? Sure like there's uh, been a few. Uh, Raising Arizona? <laughs> but they didn't kill the baby, though. It was a little different than... Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> Raising Arizona. Oh, or uh, Baby's Day Out? Not even the same. The baby didn't die. Though. None of those babies died. No, but they're no. the same. Nah. They were no. getting Kid- kidnapped. Well, yeah. uh, Ransoms. Um, raised in Arizona is probably the closest because the guy actually sneaks into the baby's room right. in a ladder while, from, they're, while yeah. they're there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Mm. Uh, not all modern authors agree <laughs> with these theories, obviously. Jim Fisher, a former FBI agent and professor at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania, 
trash college. Right. Uh, has written, I don't know, but <laughs> don't, has written two books good. on the subject called The Lindbergh Case in 1987 and The Ghost of Hopewell in 1999 hmm. to address, at least in part, what he calls a revision moment. Okay. In these texts, he explains the detail, in detail, the evidence against Haltman. He provides an interpretation discussing both the pros and cons of that evidence. He concluded, today, the Lindbergh phenomena phenomena is a giant hoax perpetrated by people who are taking advantage of an uninformed and cynical public. Okay. Notwithstanding all the books, TV programs, and legal suits, Haltman is as guilty today as he was in 1932 when he kidnapped and killed the son of Mr. and Mrs. Charles Lindbergh. Mm. And Lindbergh himself believed that Haltman must have been involved in the kidnapping and murder of his son. He remarked that Haltman was magnificently built but had eyes like a wild boar. Mm. I don't know, man. Something fishy happened where I think that with that I think that ladder thing that is ladder, legit. Aside from whoever did it, whatever happened on that ladder, or what or whatever, you know, something happened. Happened to that baby, right? Definitely, for sure. I can't see somebody just beating the head end of a baby, no, and then still going through with the ransom money, right? And like just no. Something. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, people are sick. Yeah, obviously, I, I think it, I think it was a. I don't know. That's just, in, inexperience, you know. And just this, this whole case, weird, is still uh, open to judgment and interpretation. To me, I don't know. I don't think right. there's a clear uh, person that did it. No. If it was that Fisher or that fish guy that died, that Hotman knew. Right. Or if it was Hotman, I mean, he had the money. He did have money, but he explained. Or his wife explained. Why didn't he say that? In the in the trial, though, that's what I don't get. Mm. Or obviously he did, because when we read that, people who knew Fish testified that right. Fish could not afford medical treatment in his final months and had died poor. So, yeah, so he must have mentioned Fish, that it was Fish's money. And these guys were like, no, 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 it's not, because he died in 34, two years after the... Yeah, but he just says he's left articles in his care. That's what Hopman wrote. He's but like, he also testified that he gave him a shoebox. That had money And he it. found the money. Right. And then hid but it behind boards in his garage. Right. So, could be him covering his ass, or maybe this fish guy really did it. And it's still only... Uh, or maybe they were both in on it. Oh, 14000 There's still, like, another 20, 25 missing. Well, all some that? of it was already spent, though, remember? Right. right. So, they found 14600 Plus, he spent, they spent, and they turned in 2,000-something. Right. Then we're passing bills all around town, so who knows what it looked like, you know? Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I guess uh, mm. you guys let us know what you think there of uh, what the hell's going on here. Did uh, this Isidore Fish is actually the one what left Lindbergh, the money? What did Lindbergh do after that in his career? Was that the sacrifice of the, uh, the Illuminati's? Lindbergh. Firstborn son, you got to sacrifice. Was it a son? Yeah, yeah, it was his son, man. He died in 1974. What did he do? Boom, 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 kidnapping. And then he went to Europe from 1936 to 39. He did some scientific activities pre-war. Went overseas. Oh, he had Nazi sympathies. Oh, and views on race. He had a double life and secret German children? Oh, no. Of oh, course he did. Jeez, what happened with this guy? Nazi sympathies. Lindbergh's anti-communism resonated deeply with many Americans, while his eugenics and Nordicism enjoyed social acceptance. His speeches and writings reflect on the race of eugenics, of German Nazis, and he was suspected of being a Nazi sympathizer. I think he was. 
Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unable to take part in military service, he approached a number of aviation companies and offered his services as a consultant. Whenever consulted during the war, later life, he went to Darien, Connecticut, served as a consultant of the chief of staff of the United States Air Force. Okay, double life. All right. Beginning in 1957, he engaged in lengthy sexual relationships with three women while remaining married to Anne Morrow. Oh, no. He fathered fathered three children with hat maker Bridget Heshamer, who died in 2001, that lived in the small Bavarian town of Gritschrid. Okay. Yeah, so this guy's a piece of shit. Right. Turned out to be a loser. Turned out to be a piece no, of we shit. We Maybe he didn't even want the son. Right. I don't know, man. It's rough. We yeah. can't just say that. Maybe they're just so broken, and then he just turned into a... I guess, alcoholic a, or something, and shit like happened like that, mm. just straight away from the white. Because they do say a child death, like, disintegrates uh, Especially the, the woman. Uh, relationship. And then the, like man just other, says, right? the man just like, well, you know what? Right. I'm out. I don't know. I'd have, I guess I'd have to look into uh, Lindbergh a little bit. What happened to the mom after that? More. I don't know. It's got to be somewhere. Who is the, who is the mom? It was at up top. Spouses and Morrow. He was with her the whole time. He had 13 kids. Okay. Charles Jr., John. Dude, he was an underwater diver. Anne, a novelist. And Reeve was an American author. So they're all authors and shit. And Morrow, she died in 2001. Oh, right, there. so she was with him the whole time. Right. This little foxy yeah, little so thing, she, huh? So she, she was, too, wasn't she? Damn. <laughs> 1906 dude she was a aviator herself nice damn dude she lived like 30 years after him damn she was born in 1906 he was born or married in 1929 right um she had six children with him so what did she do she was an author um best non-fiction bestsellers of the 50s suffering a series of mm-hmm. strokes throughout the 90s she lived just she died in 2001 94 Gift um, yeah, from so the Sea, 1955. An, she was an author. Okay. An inspiration for many American women. All right. Good for Anne. Good for her. So, yeah, I don't know. These two. Yeah, who, knows? who knows? Who knows? Right. Dude, this whole case is, like, weird and um, lots of stuff that probably needs to be examined way more right. than we just did. I'm not willing <laughs> but, to make uh, a verdict. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. But it's sketchy, nonetheless. Right. Nonetheless. Right. And uh, something happened that Some- could be a, a like. That's the only reason why, if you guys have been listening to us for a while, and anything that's involved the FBI, you already know how intent right. they are of covering up their inaccuracies and their and that's, shit. Anyways. That's why I always tell people, you can't just, I just, I seen it on that one site. No. You can't just believe what you read, man. You gotta so, at least get a dozen sites together and, and gather the same information. Nothing would surprise me either way. If it was Hoffman, if it was Fisher, or Fish, or if it was the FBI covering it up. Neither of those would. Yeah, there had been a neither reason. Neither of those would. There had been a reason. Me. Why did they just target him? That's why I like no. He was famous at the time. Yeah, there's. But, but still, this happened five years after he did the um, nonstop flight from Paris right. to Paris. So right. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess that's we're gonna leave you guys up to interpret it on your own. Let us know if what you guys think. You can email at us at uh, bangdangpodcast at gmail dot com. Hit us up on Twitter at. Bang Dang Podcast, and let us know what you guys are feeling after the uh, results of all this. Was it Haltman? Mm. Did the Lindberghs have something to do with it? Did the FBI and the police cover it up because they just wanted a suspect no matter what? Right. Or what do you think happened here? Let us know. And with that being said, 
this was we actually let this one run uh, a little long. It's probably gonna be about an hour fifteen, hour twenty. We haven't done one of those no. long episodes like that in a while. Haven't. Uh, we will see you next week for whatever it is that we have going on. It's gonna but be something. You know for a fact we'll be back next week. We are the Mouthy Michiganders with Bang Dang.